just a couple of things before the sermon. Number one is this. So on Thursdays, I'll go to Brookdale and have a Bible study. And I remember about four years ago, Miss Lou wanted to have a Bible study and thought, hey, if anyone from Brookdale wanted to join us, we'd have it. So we'd have two of us, maybe three, <laughs> sometimes four. That'd be about what it's been. And for whatever the reason, um, over the last probably two years especially, more and more of the residents have felt comfortable leaving um, whatever their lives are like while there and joining us in Bible study. What I love about our Bible study, aside from having good Bible study, we're in Romans chapter 11 now, is that we have Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, and right over here, Miss Roberta is Jewish. I say that because Miss Roberta, she, she just kind of like heard about the Bible study, kind of peeked in, and Miss Colette, who's been worshiping with us and visiting from time to time, good friends with Miss Roberta, she's like, I don't know about these Christians. <laughs> she loves studying the Bible now. And she says, I am coming to believe in Jesus. So I'm telling you how wonderful to, to have these opportunities. It's extremely edifying. We don't always have it, but now we have, I think, one of the, the Miss Phyllis, she's new. She just moved to Brookdale, and her daughter is in the background, Miss Laura. Um, I forget where she goes to church here in Franklin, but between some children and even some of the staff members are sitting in on the Bible study now. I mean, I'm telling you, it is just so edifying. And I, I share that with you because you're also welcome if you have your Thursday mornings available at 10 a.m. Just grab a chair. I mean, we've taken up almost all the tables. This is the largest room that they have facility-wise. And so we can still fit more people, but we try to have our Bibles open. And, and listen, they park their, their walkers. They've got, I mean, some of them have hot rods. And so... <laughs> That's what it looks like to me. And so they parked it. So it, it fills up a lot of the space. You don't, you don't get to see some of them parked behind, but they're all parked everywhere here. And so it's pretty fantastic. So you can squeeze in. You're welcome to come and join us. Miss Linda Cardin. She sits in the very back. And if, I want you to look at where she, who she is. I know she would be embarrassed, but I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, Miss Linda. Okay, there's Miss Linda. Miss Linda purchased WAKM sometime in the fall or summer last year something like that and she's been getting the radio station prepared um it's 6 50 a.m radio here in nine nine fifty. my bad i'm sorry <laughs> i would be fired <laughs> no, <I'm> sorry <laughs> 9 50 a.m and um and so what has happened is she has graciously allotted us a slot at 8 15 in the morning um from 8 15 to 8 30 and I'm trying to put something together during that time, but here's the catch. I've been listening to some of the radio programs and by and large, the audience are people who are believers. Brethren, what's our goal? To reach the lost. I wanna reach non-believers. And so I'm trying to take my time. I don't wanna just rush into this. I'm trying, trying to do it if I can within the next two weeks from now. It may take a little bit longer, but I'm hoping in two weeks I can put some things together. But I want to be able to have um, that slot used to reach the gospel to non-believers. So it'd be very simple. 
but hopefully um, important lessons that will help those in our community um, to learn about Jesus Christ. So I ask your prayers. Please pray fervently for this endeavor, um, that it would go well. The last thing I'll say before we get into the sermon is, um, this year is the first year that I've been asked to serve as a director for Camp Cope. So for those of you who know, this is my fifth year going there. Um, and Thomas Snow is wanting to turn the reins over um, and asked if I would be willing to do so. I know that Steve Garrett, last year was his first year. He's got wonderful ideas, good help. My daughter, this is her fourth year, I think. Third, third or fourth year, Carly? Fourth year. And so, and then we got some others that are interested. If you are interested, please come see me. We're going to have a background check on you. Make sure you are not a criminal serving as a counselor. But, and I'm serious, we have to do a background check. But if you are interested, we'd love to have you. Even if you're there for one day of the week, for only a part of the day, or if you're able to stay there at the campsite, um, we have a bunk for you. So let me know if you're interested. Uh, we are looking for counselors. I want to make this the best year possible for that. All right. So... Jesse read out of Genesis chapter 3, and Genesis chapter 3 was a culmination. Uh, let me go back over here. A culmination of the first three chapters of man's relationship with God. And there is a motif in this first three chapters that I want us to see in Scripture because it plays out in the whole gospel message. And so in Genesis chapter 1, remember in verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image. We're familiar with that passage, right? I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and look just before that because there's something involved in this text. I want us to read that text. And in fact, in the latter part of verse 26, we're going to really see this focused. So Genesis, I went to Genesis 26. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, not Genesis chapter 26. I want you to look at what's being said here. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and saw that it was good. So after creating all the, the animals, after the plants had been created, here's what is said. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so he created man in his image. Man started out as God's created being to reign, if you will, over all the rest of creation. Okay? So follow that up with chapter 2, and in chapter 2, we see him picking up with this, this theme of him reigning. So in verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. This was... God providing man the place to be in the garden, and then he's going to name all the animals, and we see as we continue reading on, and he is reigning in this regard. And in the midst of this reigning, he says, you eat of everything except for this one tree, knowledge of good and evil. Very symbolic 
statement, let alone literal. Symbolic from the standpoint that they could either trust God and not eat of this tree or rely upon their own justified view and partake of the tree. That's a motif that will play out through the scriptures. Of course, we know the rest of the story, right? In Genesis chapter 3, we see that that serpent, that wily serpent of old, in verse 1. It says that that serpent, more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had, cre- had made, and he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And of course, the rest of the story is, She did, right? Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So she looked upon the fruit. She could contrast what she just said, and now justify, hey, I think it's good for me to eat this tree, even though God said not to. And thus she ate. This is where the story comes in of the exile. Jesse read for us verses 22 through 24. And in verse 24, God cast them out or in the Hebrew, drove them out of the garden. This story is played out over and over and over in various circumstances. It may not be in the garden but you'll see something similar to it. And it may not be driven out. It may be something similar to it. You'll see a lot of this motif all throughout Scripture. And I believe this is a message that God is intertwining all of the Bible with regard to the gospel. And I want us to see how that is the case. So what I'm saying is that this story is universal and it resonates all across the board under all kinds of circumstances. I mean... You could even take this story and apply it to a parent-child relationship. Your, your son or your daughter is at home, and they decide to, to rebel against your desire and how you're raising them, and then you kick them out of the house. Anyone ever heard of that happening where a child is kicked out of the house, driven out? It's happened. And for whatever the reasons are over time, with the love that is there, hopefully by parent to child, the child returns home again in, in a better situation than before leaving. So these things are played out in various types of situations. And so what we're seeing in this storyline is something like this. In the beginning, relationships are perfect, right? When there are no expectations, everything is really good. But something happens where the relationship goes south, and that's when exile takes place. The subordinate is driven out by the one who is in charge, so to speak. And the return is where there's reconciliation. Now, if we know anything about reading the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, although we see it often in the Old Testament, reconciliation is always the happy ending, right? And that's what we're seeing here. So that's just the backdrop. I want us to actually go through a little bit of the scriptures and see this play out. 
Okay, I've already given you um, from Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then we're going to see how this all finishes up. So everything in the beginning starts out good. Everything is perfect. God, when he made man, and everything was very good. Oh, I wish I could remember the Hebrew word. But it, uh, remember when the scripture says, love God with um, all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength? That's the Hebrew word when God made everything very good. Same Hebrew word. So this is just as good as it can be. It's like muchly or verily. Well, not like verily, verily like the way Jesus would say, but very, like a lot of. And so that's the picture that is given here. Perfect situation. But once God made an expectation, that's when the storyline picks up. And interestingly enough, for those of us who are older, and then I'm, I'll address the young kids here. Those of us as parents, have we ever put expectations on our kids? If anyone says no, we have, uh, we've got the family series coming up at some point. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but seriously, you've got to place expectations. Otherwise, if you have no expectation of children, they don't get to grow. They don't get to be challenged in that growth, right? And so in the form of expectations, God says, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Let me ask you this question. In the day that they did eat of the fruit, did they die? What happened was they were driven out. So we're going to play that, that picture of death with exile. So keep that in mind then, because that's what we're going to be seeing, all right? But here's the thing about it. When, when we're looking at God's expectations, every expectation he had is for our good. So think about this tree. Of all the trees, some people can say, well, why would God ever place a tree knowing it's going to cause them to sin? Anyone ever thought that? It's entered my mind. But think about it from this vantage point. God puts a tree in there, and it's one in which you have, with the free will that he's given to you, an ability to follow and trust his lead or to follow and trust your own. And that's what that tree represents, the knowledge of good and evil. Is it going to be yours or his? And, of course, when they did partake of it, it says their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked. They were afraid or ashamed and hid themselves, right? We can read that in Genesis chapter 3. But when God gave that expectation, that expectation was for their good. It was not because God is like, all right, I set the trap. Let's see if they're going to sin. That's not the way he works. Although that's the way some of us may think that he works from time to time, which would be an unjust God, right? So... We have to look at it from that vantage point that we're seeing. God has provided an expectation to help us so that we would rely upon him. Obviously, man did not. And therefore, we have this picture of, of exile. Now, our modern use of the word exile, because of our modern news, typically what do we think of when we hear the word exile? Think of the Middle East. And a lot of people coming from the Middle East, going whether into certain parts of Africa or going up into Europe. I mean, mass exodus, take even right now as we speak, right? A lot of it is maybe because of famines, maybe because of a war-torn nation. 
And so they have a place where they can't even call home anymore. I mean, these are peoples who have lived in their own lands for thousands of years, and it's so terrible that they're leaving, some of whom end up in this country, whether legally or illegally. That's this consideration of exile. Well, exile is not really that, though. That, that is an exodus, but that's not necessarily an exile from a biblical standpoint. Biblically, an exile, as it's used in Scripture, is when you are being cast out, driven out by way of punishment. That's a typical way of exile. All right? So when you think of um, the Israelites in Egypt and Pharaoh drives them out because he's angry with them. And, of course, from God's perspective, I'm bringing you out. I'm going to take you to the land of promise. Two different perspectives, but they're the same thing. From the man standpoint, man-made standpoint, it's I'm driving you out. I want nothing to do with you Israelites anymore. So exile from that standpoint. Well, that's how it's used through scriptures when God is driving man out for his sins. So in the bulletin, I, I list a, a number of other type of exiles, like Genesis chapter 4. When Cain sins, right? God drives him away from the land, and he goes off into the east. And so there's a lot of um, motifs that are all working together in this picture of what we call exile. Uh, when, when the people who are all together as one nation if you, and speaking one language in Genesis chapter 11, and they try to do things on their own, God sends them out, scatters them abroad. Or when the Israelites themselves, when they are as a people and they're in the land of promise and everything is good with God, right? In the days of Joshua, everything is perfectly fine. They're driving out people of the land, so on and so forth, and they are inheriting this land of promise that God had given to Abraham some hundreds of years earlier. Well, what we see is they forsake the covenant with God. God drives them out. They go into Babylonian captivity. That's the picture of what it's like. In the beginning, everything is good in all these scenarios. And then everything ends up in exile. So that brings us to the actual exile itself. We we read in Genesis chapter 3, right, what would happen because of the exile. You ever stop to think in parent-child relationships, if the child ever says, I'm wanting to run away from home, or the parent says, I'm going to kick you out, you don't have to run away, you have a relationship that is already broken down, right? So if it's from a rebellious child standpoint, the heart is already gone. The heart has already left. And at some point, the parent may say, your heart is already left, I'm kicking you out. I mean, that's for, that sounds insensitive, but it's the reality of what has happened in many families over many generations of life. That's, that takes place. So what I'm saying is, when we're talking about exile, something has already taken place. And that is another motif in Scripture. When you're looking at the Israelites in the land of of promise, they're already forsaking God for decades and centuries, in fact, so that God sends them into captivity. He had warned them that would be the case. In the case of, of Adam and Eve, don't do this. In the day you do it, you're going to... You die. In the case of Cain, remember Cain? Sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you. You shall rule over it. There were warning signs. 
oftentimes, in fact, almost every time that I can think of in Scripture, before there's an exile, there are these warning signs. And so what we see is the exile, the driving out. It's unwanted. God never wanted to have man leave the garden per se. And the desire is to have fellowship with man. That's his desire. He wanted Cain to do well, to be righteous. But there is a necessary break in fellowship that we see in the form of this exile. Right? Even from our standpoint, when we get to see this whole lesson wrapped up, there's, there's a parallel to that from a spiritual standpoint. So what we're looking at then is this picture that everything starts off good, but because of sin, and the sin is not like this one sin per se, but something happened before that where you reject God. And it looked like one sin in the garden, but it typifies the heart of man so that man opposes his superior, in this case, God. So there's your exile. Well, look at the return. Every time you see a return, it is a picture in the Old Testament of something that is represented very well in the New Testament. It's called good news. It's reconciliation. Think about this. Every time when, when man is able to return, you're seeing a picture where God is being joined with man in fellowship. So in the case of, of, the, of the actual Israelites leaving Egypt, wandering in the wilderness in their exile, so to speak, but now they're coming back into the land. They're going to come into the land of promise. They're going to have fellowship with God. And of course, that picture is then later on played out because they themselves, while in the land of promise, realize, you know, this is not always utopia. And as a result, we can see them going back into exile, and which, we, which we do see as we get into the, the prophets as well as 1 Kings uh, or 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. But look at this picture as it played out. Um, just as was done in the Lord's Supper talk in, in Luke chapter 14 that Ben had given for us this morning, Luke chapter 15, here's the picture of the return in every, set, in every case that you have. The parables may, may not have this full picture of an exile, but look at the way it fits out. You got a lost sheep or you got a lost coin and it's gone to, to find it. But then you've got a lost son. The son who went and did his prodigal living. There's a picture of exile, not in the same way, but it's loosely tied when he comes to his senses, he returns to his father and he repents. That's the picture of the gospel. And that's what we have here all throughout scriptures. In fact, you see that God seeks you. He waits for you. He beckons you. Isn't that the gospel message? Think about it. In Paul's letter to the, to the church at Rome, speaking to Gentile Christians... He said, I'm going to call upon a people to be my people who are not mine. I will seek out those who did not seek me. That's the picture in, in the book of Romans chapter 10. And so what you have here in this picture of um, relationship, exile, and return is the gospel message. It is good news where you can have this fellowship regained with God. It's, you have this reconciliation. And all throughout the New Testament are passages that bring that point out. And so in Matthew 28, go make disciples. And what you're doing is you're actually bringing people back into a relationship with God. 
People who are created in his image, but for whatever the reason is, they have all sinned and fall short of his glory. God wants them back. I'll provide the means. I'll provide my son, he says. But go make disciples. And then in Romans chapter 10, you see them, right? Precious are the feet of those who preach good news. Because they go out and they beckon and they call for those who would come to have this relationship reestablished with Jehovah. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So what the return of exile signifies in Scripture, and this motif is all throughout Scripture, is man's heart, first of all, to return. But man's heart to return is because there is a forgiving God who calls man to return to him, who invites him. All right? So notice, kind of hard to actually hit on one passage of Scripture because this is a motif. It's loosely tied throughout Scriptures. What you have to do is when you're reading the Bible, you get this big picture and you get to see smaller pictures that fill in these concepts. And when you see them, they're beautiful. These are the stories that help us when we share good news to people who are in the world. So when we're looking at this big picture, look at it from like the bookends. For those that were in our Job study this morning, I was mentioning a very prominent way of Hebrew-style literature, and it's not just limited to the Hebrews, but typically you have within a thought, right? Sometimes within a clause, sometimes within a, what we call a chapter, sometimes with the whole book. In this case, it's the whole Bible. And I always use the word chiasm, where, where you've got the, the points and like bookends. And that's what we see here too in the whole scriptures. In the beginning, you have the tree of life, you have a curse, you have man reigning. Those, I mean, they're not necessarily in that order, but that's what you see in the first three chapters, right? Man reigning in chapter 1, verse 26. The potential for curse in chapter 2, in the day that you eat it, you will die. And of course, chapter 3 is the exile, but in chapter 2, you have the tree of life. In fact, there are other smaller forms of this motif. You've got the river coming out of the garden, again, picked up in the book of Revelation. All of these things are seen. I want you to look at Revelation 22. We're going to finish the sermon from, that, from a um, biblical scriptural standpoint and then make the, the application. Look at Revelation 22. We read this a couple of two or three weeks ago. I'm going to read it again with this in mind. And when you read Revelation 22, these first five verses, think of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And tell me if you cannot see all three chapters in here. Revelation 22, John the Apostle says in his vision, He showed me a pure river of water of life. Clear as crystal. Proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Healing from what? Think about it. Verse 3 gives the answer. There will be no more curse. 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The picture here at the end of what we call the Bible is like the very picture in the very beginning, but only better. Man reigns from the way God had intended at the very beginning. That's what happens at the end. One more time. Verse 5, and they shall reign forever and ever. So there's the intention God had where there's perfect fellowship with God and man reigning with him forever and ever. Just like in Genesis chapter 1. In the case of Genesis chapter 2, if you, in the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. That tree has been removed. There's no more of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. All that exists is the tree of life. The very tree that God had sent his cherubim in the east of the garden to guard it is now accessible. All of these things are going right back to these first three chapters. And these points here in, in Revelation 22 in the first five verses are rampant all throughout what we call the Old Testament. Replayed over and over in various ways. That's part of the reason why I'm so glad that the elders have, have allowed for us to, to just go through these Old Testament scriptures. And we get to see this big picture played out over and over in, in various contexts. It's really, it's really fascinating. But more than fascinating, you're seeing the genius of God trying to teach us a very succinct lesson about man. And about a relationship with our God. And so I share this with you because as we look at these lessons week in and week out, it's not like there's thousands and thousands and thousands of messages. The message from the gospel standpoint is pretty simple. And in some ways, very redundant. I mean, look at all the sermons and what's being preached from an actual sermon standpoint. Look at all the letters and look at the content of what is spoken of when the apostles are writing or the men that are writing these new testament letters or books look at the message they're very similar it's not like they've got years and years of sermons ready to go on on a sunday it's the same simple message and that hits this motif right here and the motif is this god has given us an opportunity to rely upon his wisdom our own when we rely on our own he leaves us to ourselves he gives us over to the father of lies but for those who come to their senses and have the humility to turn and repent to come back to Jehovah and say Lord I want to follow you and your will you have this return from exile and you'll be healed of your sins it's a picture of non-believers coming to believe that Jesus is the Christ it's a picture of believers who walk away from God only to hopefully return once again and I pray that that's the case for you very simple lesson but hopefully very helpful to you I want you to think if you're here this morning where is your heart at for some of us in this room 
our hearts may be at the very point where we may be on the brink of leaving Jehovah. I mean, you can physically be here right now, but your heart may be far away from him. God wants you to turn. Turn around, come back to him. But if not, when you fall headlong into sin, remember what happened when the apostle Paul had to go and confront this person? He says to the church at Corinth, you send him away for a season that he may be ashamed so that he may return. That's the picture. Where there's fellowship broken, but fellowship hopefully regained. Picture of reconciliation. So if that's your heart, think well before you leave the Lord. You don't want him sending you out. You want to have fellowship with him. And for those of you who have not had that kind of fellowship with him, he calls you, invites you through the teaching of his word for the message of good news to come back to him, to return to him. And that's the repentance that brings everlasting life. If you, in fact, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Who knows? You may then be turning around and become his vessel of honor to share this very simple message to someone else. Because of what God has done for you. So if you're here and you're subject to that, whether it's to be baptized into Christ or return to him, why don't you come forward as together we stand and sing the song.